0: This episode, we continue with our reading of the 1857 opinion of the court in Dred Scott v. Sanford. Picking up where we left off in part one, I'll begin with the third paragraph on page 419. To all this mass of proof, we have still to add that Congress has repeatedly legislated upon the same construction of the Constitution that we have given. Three laws, two of which were passed almost immediately after the government went into operation, will be abundantly sufficient to show this. The two first are particularly worthy of notice. Because many of the men who assisted in framing the Constitution and took an active part in procuring its adoption were then in the halls of legislation, and certainly understood what they meant when they used the words, people of the United States, and citizen, in that well-considered instrument. The first of these acts is the Naturalization Law, which was passed at the second session of the First Congress, March 26th, 1790 and confines the right of becoming citizens to aliens being free white persons. Now the Constitution does not limit the power of Congress in this respect to white persons, and they may, if they think proper, authorize the naturalization of anyone of any color who was born under allegiance to another government. But the language of the law above quoted shows that citizenship at that time was perfectly understood to be confined to the white race, and that they alone constituted the sovereignty in the government. Congress might, as we before said, have authorized the naturalization of Indians because they were aliens and foreigners, but in their then untutored and savage state, No one would have thought of admitting them as citizens in a civilized community, and moreover, the atrocities they had but recently committed, when they were the allies of Great Britain in the Revolutionary War, were yet fresh in the recollection of the people of the United States, and they were even then guarding themselves against the threatened renewal of Indian hostilities. No one supposed then that any Indian would ask for, or was capable of enjoying, the privileges of an American citizen, and the word white was not used with any particular reference to them. Neither was it used with any reference to the African race imported into or born in this country, because Congress had no power to naturalize them, and therefore there was no necessity for using particular words to exclude them. It would seem to have been used merely because it followed out the line of division which the Constitution has drawn between the citizen race, who formed and held the government, and the African race, which they held in subjection and slavery and governed at their own pleasure. Another of the early laws of which we have spoken is the first militia law, which was passed in 1792 at the first session of the second congress. The language of this law is equally plain and significant with the one just mentioned. It directs that every free able-bodied white male citizen shall be enrolled in the militia. The word white is evidently used to exclude the African race, and the word citizen to exclude unnaturalized foreigners, the latter forming no part of the sovereignty, owing it no allegiance, and therefore under no obligation to defend it. The African race, however, born in the country, did owe allegiance to the government, whether they were slave or free, but it is repudiated and rejected from the duties and obligations of citizenship in marked language. The third act to which we have alluded is even still more decisive. It was passed as late as 1813, and it provides that from and after the termination of the war in which the United States are now engaged with Great Britain, it shall not be lawful to employ on board of any public or private vessels of the United States, any person or persons except citizens of the United States, or persons of color, natives of the United States. Here, the line of distinction is drawn in express words. Persons of color in the judgment of Congress were not included in the word citizens, and they are described as another and different class of persons and authorized to be employed if born in the United States. And even as late as 1820, in the charter to the city of Washington, the corporation is authorized to restrain and prohibit the nightly and other disorderly meetings of slaves, free Negroes, and mulattoes, thus associating them together in its legislation, and after prescribing the punishment that may be inflicted on the slaves, proceeds in the following words. And to punish such free Negroes and mulattoes by penalties not exceeding $20 for any one offense, and in case of the inability of such free Negro or mulatto to pay any such penalty and cost thereon, to cause him or her to be confined to labor for any time not exceeding six calendar months. And in a subsequent part of the same section, the act authorizes the corporation to prescribe the terms and conditions upon which free Negroes and mulattoes may reside in the city, This law, like the laws of the states, shows that this class of persons were governed by special legislation directed expressly to them, and always connected with provisions for the government of slaves, and not with those for the government of free white citizens. And after such a uniform course of legislation, as we have stated, by the colonies, by the states, and by Congress, Running through a period of more than a century, it would seem that to call persons thus marked and stigmatized citizens of the United States, fellow citizens, a constituent part of the sovereignty, would be an abuse of terms and not calculated to exalt the character of an American citizen in the eyes of other nations." The conduct of the executive department of the government has been in perfect harmony upon this subject with this course of legislation. The question was brought officially before the late William Wirt, when he was the Attorney General of the United States in 1821, and he decided that the words citizens of the United States were used in the acts of Congress in the same sense as in the Constitution and that free persons of color were not citizens within the meaning of the Constitution and laws, and this opinion has been confirmed by that of the late Attorney General Caleb Cushing in a recent case, and acted upon by the Secretary of State, who refused to grant passports to them as citizens of the United States. But it is said that a person may be a citizen, and entitled to that character— Although he does not possess all the rights which may belong to other citizens as, for example, the right to vote or to hold particular offices. And that yet when he goes into another state, he is entitled to be recognized there as a citizen, although the state may measure his rights by the rights which allows to persons of a like character or class resident in the state and refuse him the full rights of citizenship. This argument overlooks the language of the provision in the constitution of which we are speaking. Undoubtedly, a person may be a citizen that is a member of the community who form the sovereignty, although he exercises no share of the political power and is incapacitated from holding particular offices, women and minors, who form a part of the political family, cannot vote, and when a property qualification is required to vote or hold a particular office, those who have not the necessary qualification cannot vote or hold the office, yet they are citizens. So too, a person may be entitled to vote by the law of the state, who is not a citizen even of the state itself, and In some of the states of the Union, foreigners not naturalized are allowed to vote, and the state may give the right to free Negroes and mulattoes, but that does not make them citizens of the state, and still less of the United States, and the provision in the Constitution giving privileges and immunities in other states does not apply to them. Neither does it apply to a person who, being the citizen of a state, migrates to another state, for then he becomes subject to the laws of the state in which he lives, and he is no longer a citizen of the state from which he removed. And the state in which he resides may then, unquestionably, determine his status or condition, and place him among the class of persons who are not recognized as citizens, but belong to an inferior and subject race, and may deny him the privileges and immunities enjoyed by its citizens. But so far as mere rights of a person are concerned, the provision in question is confined to citizens of a state who are temporarily in another state without taking up their residence there. It gives them no political rights in the state as to voting or holding office, or in any other respect, for a citizen of one state has no right to participate in the government of another. But if he ranks as a citizen in the state to which he belongs, within the meaning of the Constitution of the United States, then whenever he goes into another state, the Constitution clothes him as to the rights of person with all the privileges and immunities which belong to citizens of the state. And if persons of the African race are citizens of a state and of the United States, they would be entitled to all of these privileges and immunities in every state, and the state could not restrict them, for they would hold these privileges and immunities under the paramount authority of the federal government, and its courts would be bound to maintain and enforce them the constitution and laws of the state to the contrary, notwithstanding. And if the states could limit or restrict them or place the party in an inferior grade, this clause of the constitution would be unmeaning and could have no operation and would give no rights to the citizen when in another state. He would have none but what the state itself chose to allow him. This is evidently not the construction or meaning of the clause in question. It guarantees rights to the citizen and the state cannot withhold them. And these rights are of a character and would lead to consequences which make it absolutely certain that the African race were not included under the name of citizens of a state and were not in the contemplation of the framers of the Constitution when these privileges and immunities were provided for the protection of the citizen in other states. The case of Legrand v. Darnall has been referred to for the purpose of showing that this court has decided that the descendant of a slave may sue as a citizen in a court of the United States, but the case itself shows that the question did not arise and could not have arisen in the case. It appears from the report that Darnall was born in Maryland and was the son of a white man by one of his slaves, and his father executed certain instruments to manumit him and devised to him some landed property in the state. This property Darnall afterwards sold to Legrand, the appellant, who gave his notes for the purchase money. But becoming afterwards apprehensive that the appellee had not been emancipated according to the laws of Maryland, he refused to pay the notes until he could be better satisfied as to Darnall's right to convey. Darnall, in the meantime, had taken up his residence in Pennsylvania and brought suit on the notes and recovered judgment in the circuit court for the District of Maryland. The whole proceeding, as appears by the report, was an amicable one, Legrand being perfectly willing to pay the money if he could obtain a title, and Darnall not wishing him to pay unless he could make him a good one. In point of fact, the whole proceeding was under the direction of the counsel who argued the case for the appellee, who was the mutual friend of the parties and confided in by both of them, and whose only object was to have the rights of both parties established by judicial decision in the most speedy and least expensive manner. Legrand, therefore, raised no objection to the jurisdiction of the court in the suit at law, because he was himself anxious to obtain the judgment of the court upon his title. Consequently, there was nothing in the record before the court to show that Darnall was of African descent, and the usual judgment and award of execution was entered. And Legrand thereupon filed his bill. On the equity side of the circuit court, stating that Darnall was born a slave and had not been legally emancipated and could not therefore take the land devised to him, nor make Legrand a good title, and praying an injunction to restrain Darnall from proceeding to execution on the judgment which was granted. Darnall answered, averring in his answer that he was a free man and capable of conveying a good title, Testimony was taken on this point, and at the hearing, the circuit court was of opinion that Darnall was a free man, and his title good, and dissolved the injunction and dismissed the bill, and that decree was affirmed here upon the appeal of Legrand. Now it is difficult to imagine how any question about the citizenship of Darnall or his right to sue in that character can be supposed to have arisen or been decided in that case. The fact that he was of African descent was first brought before the court upon the bill in equity. The suit at law had then passed into judgment and award of execution, and the circuit court, as a court of law, had no longer any authority over it. It was a valid and legal judgment which the court that rendered it had not the power to reverse or set aside. And, unless it had jurisdiction as a court of equity to restrain him from using its process as a court of law, Darnall, if he thought proper, would have been at liberty to proceed on his judgment and compel the payment of the money, although the allegations in the bill were true and he was incapable of making a title. No other court could have enjoined him, for certainly no state equity court could interfere in that way with the judgment of a circuit court of the United States. But the circuit court, as a court of equity, certainly had equity jurisdiction over its own judgment as a court of law, without regard to the character of the parties, and had not only the right, but it was its duty, no matter who were the parties in the judgment, to prevent them from proceeding to enforce it by execution if the court was satisfied that the money was not justly and equitably due. The inability of Darnall to convey did not depend on his citizenship, but upon his title to freedom. And if he was free, he could hold and convey property by the laws of Maryland, although he was not a citizen, But if he was by law still a slave, he could not. It was therefore the duty of the court, sitting as a court of equity in the latter case, to prevent him from using its process as a court of common law to compel the payment of the purchase money when it was evident that the purchaser must lose the land. But if he was free, and could make a title, it was equally the duty of the court not to suffer Legrand to keep the land and refuse the payment of the money upon the ground that Darnall was incapable of suing or being sued as a citizen in a court of the United States. The character or citizenship of the parties had no connection with the question of jurisdiction, and the matter in dispute had no relation to the citizenship of Darnall nor is such a question alluded to in the opinion of the court. Besides, we are by no means prepared to say that there are not many cases, civil as well as criminal, in which a circuit court of the United States may exercise jurisdiction, although one of the African race is a party. That broad question is not before the court, The question with which we are now dealing is whether a person of the African race can be a citizen of the United States, and become thereby entitled to a special privilege by virtue of his title to that character, and which, under the Constitution, no one but a citizen can claim. It is manifest that the case of LeGrand and Darnall has no bearing on that question, and can have no application to the case now before the court. This case, however, strikingly illustrates the consequences that would follow the construction of the Constitution, which would give the power contended for to a state. It would, in effect, give it also to an individual, For if the father of young Darnall had manumitted him in his lifetime and sent him to reside in a state which recognized him as a citizen, he might have visited and sojourned in Maryland when he pleased, and as long as he pleased, as a citizen of the United States, and the state officers and tribunals would be compelled by the paramount authority of the Constitution to receive him and treat him as one of its citizens, exempt from the laws and police of the state in relation to a person of that description, and allow him to enjoy all the rights and privileges of citizenship without respect to the laws of Maryland, although such laws were deemed by it absolutely essential to its own safety." The only two provisions which point to them and include them, treat them as property and make it the duty of the government to protect it. No other power in relation to this race is to be found in the constitution. And as it is a government of special delegated powers, no authority beyond these two provisions can be constitutionally exercised. The government of the United States had no right to interfere for any other purpose but that of protecting the rights of the owner, leaving it altogether with several states to deal with this race, whether emancipated or not, as each state may think justice, humanity, and the interests and safety of society require. The States evidently intended to reserve this power exclusively to themselves. No one, we presume, supposes that any change in public opinion or feeling in relation to this unfortunate race in the civilized nations of Europe or in this country should induce the Court to give to the words of the Constitution A more liberal construction in their favor than they were intended to bear when the instrument was framed and adopted. Such an argument would be altogether inadmissible in any tribunal called on to interpret it. If any of its provisions are deemed unjust, there is a mode prescribed in the instrument itself by which it may be amended but while it remains unaltered, it must be construed now as it was understood at the time of its adoption. It is not only the same in words, but the same in meaning, and delegates the same powers to the government, and reserves and secures the same rights and privileges to the citizen. And as long as it continues to exist in its present form, it speaks not only in the same words, but with the same meaning and intent with which it spoke when it came from the hands of its framers and was voted on and adopted by the people of the United States. Any other rule of construction would abrogate the judicial character of this court and make it the mere reflex of the popular opinion or passion of the day, This court was not created by the Constitution for such purposes. Higher and graver trusts have been confided to it, and it must not falter in the path of duty. What the construction was at that time, we think, can hardly admit of doubt. We have the language of the Declaration of Independence and of the Articles of Confederation, In addition to the plain words of the Constitution itself, we have the legislation of the different states before, about the time, and since the Constitution was adopted. We have the legislation of Congress from the time of its adoption to a recent period. And we have the constant and uniform action of the Executive Department all concurring together and leading to the same result. And if anything in relation to the construction of the Constitution can be regarded as settled, it is that which we now give to the word citizen and the word people. And upon a full and careful consideration of the subject, the court is of opinion that upon the facts stated in the plea in abatement, Dred Scott was not a citizen of Missouri within the meaning of the Constitution of the United States, and not entitled as such to sue in its courts, and, consequently, that the circuit court had no jurisdiction of the case, and that the judgment on the plea in abatement is erroneous. We are aware that doubts are entertained by some of the members of the court whether the plea in abatement is legally done before the court upon this writ of error, but if that plea is regarded as waived, or out of the case upon any other ground, yet the question as to the jurisdiction of the circuit court is presented on the face of the bill of exception itself, taken by the plaintiff at the trial— For he admits that he and his wife were born slaves, but endeavors to make out his title to freedom and citizenship by showing that they were taken by their owner to certain places, hereinafter mentioned, where slavery could not by law exist, and that they thereby became free and, upon their return to Missouri, became citizens of that state." Now, if the removal of which he speaks did not give them their freedom, then, by his own admission, he is still a slave. And whatever opinions may be entertained in favor of the citizenship of a free person of the African race, no one supposes that a slave is a citizen of the state or of the United States." If, therefore, the acts done by his owner did not make them free persons, he is still a slave, and certainly incapable of suing in the character of a citizen. The principle of law is too well settled to be disputed that a court can give no judgment for either party, where it has no jurisdiction, and if, upon the showing of Scott himself, it appeared that he was still a slave, the case ought to have been dismissed, and the judgment against him and in the favor of the defendant for costs is, like that on the plea in abatement, erroneous, and the suit ought to have been dismissed by the circuit court for want of jurisdiction in that court. But before we proceed to examine this part of the case, it may be proper to notice that an objection taken to the judicial authority of this court to decide it, and it it has been said that as this court has decided against the jurisdiction of the circuit court on the plea in abatement, it has no right to examine any question presented by the exception, and that anything it may say upon that part of the case will be extrajudicial and mere obiter dicta. This is a manifest mistake. There can be no doubt as to the jurisdiction of this court to revise the judgment of a circuit court and to reverse it for any error apparent on the record, whether it be the error of giving judgment in a case over which it had no jurisdiction or any other material error, and this too whether there is a plea in abatement or not. The objection appears to have arisen from confounding writs of error to a state court with writs of error to a circuit court of the United States. Undoubtedly, upon a writ of error to a state court, unless the record shows a case that gives jurisdiction, the case must be dismissed for want of jurisdiction in this court. And if it is dismissed on that ground, we have no right to examine and decide upon any question presented by the Bill of Exceptions or any other part of the record. But writs of error to a state court and to a circuit court of the United States are regulated by different laws and stand upon entirely different principles. And in a writ of error to a circuit court of the United States, the whole record is before this court for examination and decision. And if the sum in controversy is large enough to give jurisdiction, it is not only the right, but it is the judicial duty of the court to examine the whole case as presented by the record. And If it appears upon its face that any material error or errors have been committed by the court below, it is the duty of this court to reverse the judgment and remand the case. And certainly an error in passing a judgment upon the merits in favor of either party in a case which it was not authorized to try and over which it had no jurisdiction is as grave an error as a court can commit. The plea in abatement is not a plea to the jurisdiction of this court, but to the jurisdiction of the circuit court, and it appears by the record before us that the circuit court committed an error in deciding that it had jurisdiction upon the facts in the case admitted by the pleadings, It is the duty of the appellate tribunal to correct this error, but that could not be done by dismissing the case for want of jurisdiction here, for that would leave the erroneous judgment in full force and the injured party without remedy, and the appellate court therefore exercises the power for which alone appellate courts are constituted, By reversing the judgment of the court below for this error, it exercises its proper and appropriate jurisdiction over the judgment and proceedings of the circuit court as they appear upon the record brought up by the writ of error. The correction of one error in the court below does not deprive the appellate court of the power of examining further into the record and correcting any other material errors which may have been committed by the inferior court. There is certainly no rule of law, nor any practice, nor any decision of a court which even questions this power in the appellate tribunal. On the contrary, it is the daily practice of this court, and of all appellate courts, where they reverse the judgment of an inferior court for error, to correct by its opinions, whatever errors may appear on the record material to the case, and they have always held it to be their duty to do so, where the silence of the court might lead to misconstruction or future controversy, and the point has been relied on by either side and argued before the court." In the case before us, we have already decided that the circuit court erred in deciding that it had jurisdiction upon the facts admitted by the pleadings, and it appears that, in the further progress of the case, it acted upon the erroneous principle it had decided on the pleadings, and gave judgment for the defendant where, upon the facts admitted in the exception, it had no jurisdiction." We are at a loss to understand upon what principle of law applicable to appellate jurisdiction it can be supposed that this court has not judicial authority to correct the last mentioned error because they had before corrected the former, or by what process of reasoning it can be made out that the error of an inferior court in actually pronouncing judgment for one of the parties in a case in which it had no jurisdiction cannot be looked into or corrected by this court because we have decided a similar question presented in the pleadings. The last point is distinctly presented by the facts contained in the plaintiff's own bill of exceptions, which he himself brings here by this writ of error. It was the point which chiefly occupied the attention of the counsel on both sides in the argument, and the judgment which this court must render upon both errors is precisely the same. It must, in each of them, exercise jurisdiction over the judgment, and reverse it for the errors committed by the court below, and issue a mandate to the circuit court to conform its judgment to the opinion pronounced by this court, by dismissing the case for want of jurisdiction in the circuit court. This is the constant and invariable practice of this court, where it reverses a judgment for want of jurisdiction in the circuit court. It can scarcely be necessary to pursue such a question further, The want of jurisdiction in the court below may appear on the record without any plea in abatement. This is familiarly the case where a court of chancery has exercised jurisdiction in a case where the plaintiff had a plain and adequate remedy at law, and it so appears by the transcript when brought here by appeal. So also where it appears that a court of admiralty has exercised jurisdiction in a case belonging exclusively to a court of common law. In these cases, there is no plea in abatement, and for the same reason, and upon the same principles, where the defect of jurisdiction is patent on the record, this court is bound to reverse the judgment although the defendant has not pleaded in abatement to the jurisdiction of the inferior court. The cases of Jackson v. Ashton and of Capron v. Van Norden, to which we have referred in a previous part of this opinion, are directly in point. In the last mentioned case, Capron brought an action against Van Norden in a circuit court of the United States, without showing, by the usual averments of citizenship, that the court had jurisdiction. There was no plea in abatement put in, and the parties went to trial upon the merits. The court gave judgment in favor of the defendant with costs. The plaintiff thereupon brought his writ of error, And this court reversed the judgment given in favor of the defendant and remanded the case with directions to dismiss it because it did not appear by the transcript that the circuit court had jurisdiction. The case before us still more strongly imposes upon this court the duty of examining whether the court below has not committed an error in taking jurisdiction and giving a judgment for costs in favor of the defendant, for in Capron v. Van Noorden, the judgment was reversed because it did not appear that the parties were citizens of different states. They might or might not be, but in this case, it does appear that the plaintiff was born a slave, and if the facts upon which he relies have not made him free, then it appears affirmatively on the record that he is not a citizen, and consequently his suit against Sanford was not a suit between citizens of different states, and the court had no authority to pass any judgment between the parties. The suit ought, in this view of it, to have been dismissed by the circuit court, and its judgment in favor of Sanford is erroneous and must be reversed. It is true that the result either way, by dismissal, or by a judgment for the defendant, makes very little, if any, difference in a pecuniary or personal point of view to either party, but the fact that the result would be very nearly the same to the parties in either form of judgment would not justify this court in sanctioning an error in the judgment which is patent on the record, and which, if sanctioned, might be drawn into precedent and lead to serious mischief and injustice in some future suit. We've come to the end of this segment of The Opinion. Next episode, we will pick up right where we left off. Until then, Thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.